This morning's sermon comes from the prophet Malachi, the last chapter, the last three verses. So we'll be turning to Malachi chapter 4, begin reading in verses 4, then we'll read verses 4, 5, and 6. If you've ever found yourself frustrated because you know you've heard the same thing over and over again and it hasn't quite sunk in, especially when it comes to things of God's word, I think hopefully along with me you'll find some things to identify with in this passage and what it teaches us about the goodness of our God and and the reality of our own hearts. Malachi chapter 4, uh, just a little bit of context here. Earlier in the book, um, through the prophet Malachi, God comes in a series of indictments where he asks, uh, makes statements, asks questions sometimes of Israel. And it's very, very interesting because uh, he makes claims like that he has loved Israel. And they respond, well, how have you really loved us? And, and he begins to to poke into their hearts a little bit concerning sacrifices where they're bringing sort of mangled or uh, rotten animals to pass off as sacrifices in the temple. Or he'll say things like, you're robbing me through your tithing. So, well, that's a strange thing to say. That, that doesn't really make sense. We tend to think that giving is giving, not that giving is robbing. But God is getting after the heart of the matter. And so here at the end of Malachi, he comes in one final word. And, and so we hear here the last few words from God at the end of the prophetic corpus in the Old Testament. So in our English Bibles, in any case, the last few words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4.4 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord God, we know that we have no hope in ourselves, and so we pray, Father, for your spirit to be at work through your word. That, as you promise us, like a double-edged sword, it would penetrate to the the very core of who we are, the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, Lord, that we would not remain Um, as we are, but that we would be transformed to be more and more like Christ. Help us to see the gospel more clearly. Help us to see ourselves more clearly. Most of all, help us to see you with clarity. Help us to trust in you, Lord. For those who do not know you, we pray, oh God, that faith would be given. Pray for others that faith would be strengthened. And that your word, Father, would be revealed to be sufficient for us. That it is Truly all we need to be satisfied, joyful, in faith and in life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to describe a few things for you and, and see if you can tell what they all have in common. See if, see if you can tell what these things have in common. A final boarding call for an airplane. The last freeway exit on the 5 South before you cross from California into Mexico. If you're in line for a roller coaster, the last chance to get out of line before they strap you in and you can't 
get out anymore. Maybe an evacuation order for a, for a hurricane or a wildfire. Get out now if you want to save your life. Or maybe something a little bit less intense. Um, kids, something that still seems just forever in the distance uh, in the future, the last day of summer. What do these things all have in common? Well, they are last steps. They are last steps before a decisive change. Another way to describe them is that they are ultimatums. What is an ultimatum? Uh, An ultimatum, it's a final request, a command, or a condition. Um, Especially one where if you reject it, if you reject the ultimatum, then it will end negotiations and uh, both parties, perhaps one party more than the other, will move forward to the use of force, right? When negotiations break down, ultimatums typically require, expect, or demand a response, And in all of life, we recognize that that ultimatums provoke action, but they're not usually the first response. Normal people don't start a conversation with an ultimatum. That's not usually where conversations or relationships start. Do this or else. That's not the pathway to a healthy relationship. Usually ultimatums come when a lot of other things have broken down already. Even as the last step, they run the risk, if they don't work, of aggravating hostility and bitterness. And so in a sense, we see God giving an ultimatum. And, and, and what this reveals is he is willing to make use of all the medicine, of all the motivations at his disposal to call his wayward people back to himself. And that's actually kind of an incredible thing here at the point we find ourselves in Malachi. Think about the history of God's people up to this point. Led where we heard early in the service in Psalm 106 from Mount Sinai to the promised land, placed there, but they went after other gods, intermarried with the people in the land. And though they had a king, and though they had a brief period of prosperity, God, the Bible says, through the land vomited them out into captivity with uh, destruction in the northern kingdom from the Assyrians. Captivity through the Babylonians eventually led them back to rebuild what was destroyed, the temple and the walls. And now we find ourselves in Malachi, about the second generation after that, think around the 400s or so. So just to state it very clearly, the people that Malachi is speaking to are sort of like the grandchildren. There's a good reason to think that these are the grandchildren of those who returned and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the wall. Now, if you are a grandchild, or you have grandchildren, um, you might think about that on two different sides. But as as a grandchild myself, it's it's good to realize, it's good to be honest with ourselves and realize that that grandkids need to listen. (laughs) Sometimes grandkids need to pay pretty close attention. And, And so God here through Malachi is speaking to those who should know better because they've seen what's come before. So God makes use of all the motivations at his disposal to turn them from their apathy and concrete hearts. He's about to give one final word and then he's going to be silent for centuries. And they should listen before it's too late. But what's interesting about these people is it's almost like they've forgotten how to listen. It's almost like they've forgotten how to listen. This is the sixth indictment that God brings and it's almost like they've forgotten how to listen they're not that different from us we all know what it's like to hear the same thing over and over again 
and still not quite get it. We all know what it's like to hear the same thing over and over again and forget to listen and forget to change. And so here at the end of Malachi, God commands Israel to receive his ultimatum, to heed it, to hear it, to listen, to truly listen and to obey. Why? Well, we see in the text, so their hearts would be turned outward in love. And this and this alone will prevent their destruction. So, there's three ways in which God wants Israel to respond to his ultimatum. The first one is that they should remember Moses. Remember Moses. The second is that they should receive Elijah. And the third is that they should repent from the heart. So firstly, they should remember Moses. We see this in uh, the beginning of chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Why remember the law of Moses? Why remember the law of Moses? Well, there's two reasons. Moses delivered Israel, and he gave them as a gift God's law. And God's law, as we see in Scripture, was always meant to remind Israel of what God had done to deliver them. That's always the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. It's to remind Israel of God's mercy, to point them to his power to redeem. And the law of Moses is not so much about Moses, because we know that Moses had some pretty serious character flaws and defects. You know them. He was a murderer. We could stop there, but we could keep going. Uh, He was angry, and he was very afraid. So the law of Moses is not so much about remembering Moses, but about remembering the one who gave the law to Moses. Because God goes on to say, the law that, uh, that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So remember the law, God says. Um, as one old preacher would say, stamp it on your eyeballs. It should be the, the, the lens through which, like a contact lens, you see everything and you can't see anything clearly without, without it. Remember the law. Now, let's stop and talk about this word for remember for just a moment. You, you, if you're anything like me, you might be inclined to think that remembering is kind of like remembering your phone number or remembering your address or remembering times tables, uh, kids, or how to do long division um, or how to multiply. But, but that's not quite what this word is getting at. It's, it's not quite getting at the rote ability to regurgitate information that remains sort of static and unanimated. It's not just recall. That's, the, that's not the idea at all. Remembering here, it's, it's memory that is integrated with heart and will that leads to action. That's the kind of connotation that this word has. Remember, it's an action word. It's not just a recall Word. So this is a lot more about muscle than it is about just memory or, or mental knowledge. It's more about muscle. Think about it. Think about it like riding a bike, for example. When you're first learning to ride a bike, there are all sorts of things that you have to really, really focus on as you are 
trying to gain the skills and the muscle memory you need in order to be able to balance and go straight. I have a friend, to use a different analogy, who's teaching his daughter to drive, and he says that she can do uh, two out of three things at once, but she can't do all three. She can either she can go the right speed, she can stay in the, in the, in the correct lane, and she can carry on a conversation. Um, she can do two of those things, but she cannot yet do all three of those things at the same time. So he's encouraging her, do not carry on a conversation, just focus on going the right speed and staying in the right lane. Well, eventually she will be able to carry on a conversation. Why is that? It's because she will remember how to drive. You might say, but she never forgot. Well, she never learned. She didn't yet truly remember, because that's the idea of memory here. It's, it is remembering the law of God in a way where mind and will and heart and body are united and integrated together to take action based on what God has declared to be true. And we ignore it at our own peril. We forget. And that's the reality that, that is anticipated way back by the prophet Jeremiah As the exile is unfolding, he says this, My people have forgotten me days without number. God says, My people have forgotten me days without number. Zechariah 7.12, They made their hearts, listen to this, They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear. My people have, my people have forgotten me days without number. So, so Israel here, it's so important we understand this. They are not just missing information. This is not an information problem. It's not as if they've gotten to the end of the Old Testament. And there's one piece of information that, that if they just had it, everything would click. And spiritual life would begin to flourish. That is not the problem. We might call this the sin of diamond-hard amnesia. Diamond-hard amnesia. What is amnesia? Amnesia is the mysterious loss of old memories, or it could also be the inability to make new memories. I'll tell you a story to illustrate this. There was a man named Henry Mollison. He grew up in the 1930s, 1940s, and from a very early age, he suffered with terrible seizures. Uh, And unbeknownst to him, he ended up on the cutting edge of uh, neuroscience research. There was a neurosurgeon who, in his research, concluded that Henry's seizures were being caused by a defect in his brain. His brain was malfunctioning and was causing him to have seizures. And so Henry agreed to undergo an operation. And at the age of 27, uh, Henry underwent an operation in which this neurosurgeon removed a piece of his brain that he thought was causing the seizures. And it worked. Henry woke up and his seizures were gone. But he got something that he didn't have before, and the thing that he got was a form of amnesia. And it's actually the form that we're less familiar with. You might be thinking he couldn't remember anything before the surgery, but that's actually not what happened. It's really, really interesting. That would be called retrograde amnesia, where there's a point, and in your past, before that, you can't really remember things. But that's not what happened to Henry. What happened to Henry was called anterograde amnesia, where he lost the ability to make new memories. So he could no longer move things from his short-term memory to his long-term memory. All he had was experience. No memory. No action based on those memories. 
What does this have to do with us? One pastor has rightly observed that we are spiritual amnesiacs. We forget through diamond-hard hearts who we are in Christ. We forget through diamond-hard forgetfulness what Christ has done for us, but we also struggle with the kind of amnesia that Henry had, is that we, we struggle to make new memories, to carve new pathways of obedience in light of the gospel, in light of all that God has accomplished. The diamond-hardness of our hearts runs in both directions. Can you imagine shouting at an, at, at, at an amnesiac to remember? Why don't you just try a little harder? We think we use the law this way sometimes with ourselves. If you would just try a little harder to remember, um, then you would remember. If you would try just a little bit harder to obey, then, then you would obey. Sometimes we use the law in this way with ourselves and with one another. But it's only with complete restoration of function, essentially a new brain or a new heart that, that, get this, the exhortation to remember would even be remembered. The brain has to be completely restored. Function has to be restored. Beloved, for you and I, the heart has to be torn out and replaced with a new heart that loves God and that looks to Christ and that has faith and trusts in God's word. That's what we need, not more exhortations to drive us to new life. The law cannot do that, but we need the gospel. We need a new heart, and that's what God provides for his people. That's what he provides for us as we look to Christ, as he gives us Restoration of function. It's one of our greatest daily needs. And then we can remember. Then we can remember the law and we can remember who we are in Christ. That we would be amnesiacs no longer. Well, it's one thing that God says to his people is to remember the law of Moses. But he also tells them to receive someone, and he tells them to receive Elijah. Now, um, this seems completely out of place. Elijah here at the, old, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, so I'm going to walk us through it. It's, it's really incredible. God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Why is Elijah here? Moses kind of makes sense because of his preeminent place in the Old Testament. He's sort of part and parcel with the law of God. So saying, look to Moses, kind of like, remember the law. Well, I think one way to think about Elijah here is it's kind of like saying, remember the law and the prophets, which is really sort of like saying, remember God's whole counsel, the whole Old Testament. This is God's word. So remember God's word, receive it. In a way, the whole Old Testament is summarized just in these three verses. But there's more we could say. Elijah, he's not the first prophet. He's not the last prophet. He occupies a part of the historical books. He's not a writing prophet, so he doesn't have a book named after him. So why Elijah? I think this is why. He's mentioned here at the end of Malachi because of his um, stubbornness, for, for one thing. He, he stood stubbornly against the spirit of the age and the powers of the age. If you know his story, you know that he um, stood upright and stubbornly even when many other prophets had gone into hiding. That's one reason. But then Elijah is also, also associated with the sort of climactic end of all things. He's, he's very 
interwoven with the, the coming of the day of the Lord. In other words, a new Elijah, not the one that's been, been dead for centuries, but a new Elijah is going to come at the climax of history to bring about the realities that Elijah declared, the need for a new heart. He's going to bring God to dwell with his people. Repentance from the heart. The work of the new age. Well, if you know your Bible, you know that John the Baptist is the one who would come as Elijah, right? We know that. We know that he came so much like Elijah, came from the wilderness, stubborn, upright, ended up paying the ultimate price because of his resilient commitment to the truths of God's word and to the kingdom of God. I want you to hear this passage from Luke 1, and then I want you to Think about what we've read in Malachi, and, and the, the echoes of Malachi are really incredible here. Think about this Luke, uh, passage from Luke 1, thinking about John the Baptist, this new Elijah. John will go before Jesus, Luke 1, 13 and 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you hear that? John will go before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Yet this new Elijah, to be honest with you, seemed to totally fail. He ends up beheaded. Did he turn hearts? You could ask that question. Well, we have to look carefully at the New Testament. Luke 1 says that that John, he will turn hearts. He will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I think that what the Bible is saying is this, that John was sort of like the match that would ignite the bonfire. That he came at this climactic moment, the last Old Testament prophet. We could think of him in that way. One scholar has referred to him as the prophet of ultimatum. The one who will come with a final word calling Men and women to repentance as, as Christ is among us, as Christ is with us. Well, could he turn hearts in the same way that the, that the Holy Spirit could have? Of course not. But as a minister of water and the word, he called the people to repentance. As the Spirit turned their hearts. What does all this mean for us? You've heard this before, and it's nothing new. Repent. Believe. And perhaps in a way like Elijah, perhaps in a way like John, endure. Repent, believe, and endure. It may require a stubborn stand against the spirit of the age. It may require a life that ends in what looks like to the world to be total defeat. But repent and believe and, and endure. Why? Because we're supposed to be prepared for the Lord. And repenting people are prepared people. So we're called in this text, beloved, to do uh, two things so far. We're meant to remember the law of Moses. We're meant to um, heed and, and receive Elijah, the one that he pointed to. And, and the one that that one, John, ran ahead of should remember who we are. But there's a way in which we must repent. And and what is that? Our third point this morning, part of God's ultimatum, is that we must repent from the heart. We must repent from the heart. 
What is significant about the heart? Well, the Bible seems to describe the heart in in a, in a wide variety of ways, but one we might point to is as this sort of throne room of emotion and, and intellect. We would like to think that we are very rational people, that we make calculated decisions about what is best for us and what is best for others, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, we make impulsive and emotional decisions that are driven, at least colloquially speaking, by the heart. By the heart. John Calvin famously called the heart a factory of idols. And the Bible gives the heart a lot of power, but it also says that it must change. That it must change. We see this here in verse 6. He, this Elijah that's going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and turn the hearts of children to their fathers. The word turn here is the Old Testament word for repentance. Uh, to be honest with you, it was, a, it was coincidental that this text was on, uh, at least what's on the calendar as Father's Day. Um, I promise you. But it is interesting that, that fathers are called to repent to their children, to turn their hearts to repent, and that, and that children are called to repent to their fathers. It's almost like the Bible knows that dads will need to repent to their kids and that Kids will need to repent to their dads. The Bible here is saying, stop going that way. Turn around and go this way. Stop thinking that way. Turn around and go this way. It's almost like the Bible is even saying, stop feeling that way. Turn around and feel this way. The heart has to remember. The heart has to remember. Why the focus on fathers and sons here? Well, it's likely that that fathers and sons functions as sort of a part for the whole. It's like pointing to the whole household, which is a little society, a little city, a little empire, a little kingdom uh, in miniature. The sort of place where our hearts are put on display day after day before the people who know us best and see the most of us. They see what is truly going on. They see what we truly love. But, beloved, isn't that exactly the work that God has been doing all along, that he always has been doing all along? Turning the hearts of sinners towards each other and towards him. Remember, like we said, the point of this passage is that we would repent from the heart to turn outward in love. That's what God has always been doing. He's doing that in your heart day by day and doing that in my heart day by day, turning our hearts in repentance towards love, towards others, and towards him. That's what he did through his spirit in Ezekiel, taking out hearts of stone and giving hearts of flesh. And because of that new heart, we turn from our sin and place our trust in the finished work of Christ. This passage has one more warning. What if our hearts are not turned? What if we don't remember What if we don't repent from the heart? Well, the final word in the Old Testament is that if this doesn't happen, I will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So if our hearts are not turned, when God comes, he will not soften, but he will strike. If our hearts are not turned, God, when he comes on the day of the Lord, will not soften, but he will strike. 
What should that mean for us? Don't harden your hearts towards one another. Don't harden your hearts towards God's work of repentance. You know, you think about it, the things that Israel has faced in the land, there's nothing that could be worse for them seemingly at this point than what they have already experienced. Their families have been wrecked by intermarriage, marrying the the daughters of pagans in the land all around them. Um, they, They chose their first king based on who was tall and handsome instead of who was righteous and godly. Eventually, the kingdom was divided. Um, They were besieged for um, decades by enemy nations, Assyria, eventually Babylon. They found themselves sort of kind of comfortable in Babylon and wondering, is it really worth it to go back home? Um, All of the disease of sin has worked its way, and you might think, what could be worse for them than they've already experienced? All of these things were preludes and previews of a decisive judgment that would come for them. And if we're honest, even the the misery that we face in this life is, is a prelude and a preview of decisive judgment that will come, that will be far worse if we do not turn from the heart. These are dark clouds. But there are rays of sunshine penetrating them. And I think it's this, that God is going to send someone who will do this work for the people that up to this point they, they are disinterested in doing for themselves. They refused to do it for themselves. And, and this is the great gospel hope of, of the Bible, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that God comes for a rebellious people, not a neutral people, but a rebellious people. Rebellious in ways that they don't even realize and that he comes and heals them and renews them and and reforms them and gives them new hearts. So, beloved, for you and I, why do we need to hear this this morning? As we said at the beginning, we all know what it's like to hear the same thing over and over again, yet forget. To forget or, perhaps even worse, postpone the call to listen and change. But the reality is, it's true for me, and I think it's true for you, none of us can fix our minds or prepare our hearts. The sin is too deep. The cement of self-righteousness is too thick. The whole thing, heart and mind, it has to be torn out, replaced by the Spirit of God with a soul that confesses and, and believes. Friends, Christ came to remember and keep the law for those who had willfully forgotten and willfully rebelled. That's the gospel that he came to keep it for people like you and like me. Through his righteousness to the law, we have hope as law forgetters and covenant infidels. The hard truth is this. We don't deserve the ultimatum. We don't deserve the warnings. We don't deserve the off-ramp. We don't deserve the boarding call. We don't deserve the evacuation notice. We deserve the decree of destruction. We deserve the flood and the fire. We deserve the cross. But Christ was crushed in our place on the day of the Lord so that we could look forward to that day that is yet to come, not with fear that God might come to destroy, but with hope 
That on that day, he's coming to resurrect and he's coming to renew and he's coming to rebuild what we have broken. And he's going to do it in such a way that it can never be broken again. That no tear will ever be able to be shed again for sin or misery. But he's on that day coming not to destroy, but to renovate and resurrect. That is our great hope. We do not need to fear that day because Christ was crushed in our place on the day. And think about Jesus. He never gave the Father an ultimatum. Did Jesus ever say, do this or else, to his heavenly Father? No. Rather, in turmoil, when he could turn, he prayed, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, when he could could call down legions of angels to rescue him, gently he persevered and endured. It's finished. So, beloved, in light of what Jesus has done, we're called this morning to remember, to remember the law and to remember the gospel, to integrate knowledge with action, that we might be a people prepared for his coming, not out of fear, but out of gratitude for all that he's done. That our hearts might be strengthened by his spirit and that that you and I might have um, powerful memories of undeserved grace and the pathways which they lead us down. Would we have hearts that no longer turn inward but rejoice to love one another at home, in the church, even our enemies, and in all of life? Would you pray with me? Father, we are often slow of hearing. We are often slow to remember, but as we heard earlier this morning, Lord, we're so grateful that though, though we often forget that you always remember your covenant bond to your people. We thank you, Lord, that you have united us to yourself through Christ, and we thank you that he was a perfect substitute, the perfect messenger, the perfect savior, Lord, we confess that that the cement of our hearts is often so thick that we mistake religion for righteousness. Father, we pray that you would do a work of the Spirit in our hearts where bitterness is lingering, where disgust for others is lingering, where hypocrisy and judgment and besetting sin is lingering. Father, we pray that that you would wipe it that you would wipe it and that we would come to you, Lord, with with open hands as beggars hungry to be filled, desperate to be fed. Oh, Lord, we know that you give so generously. We know that you've given so generously to uh, all of your people, the saints throughout the ages, for the, for, throughout all the years. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, help us to see Christ clearly in both Old and, and New Testament. And Father, would we not mistake the law for the gospel, but would we see that through grace you are building, restoring and renewing what is broken. Help us to trust in you this day. And as we go from here to leave with joyful, grateful hearts. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.